Thanks for continuing to listen to this podcast. I appreciate your support and I hope that it becomes informative for you or has been. And now for season two, episode two, Introventricular Twin Fetuses in Fee 2. So this is both a sad but amazing case. Um, And I was reminded about it back in um, early fall. I was actually on call and there was a patient who had a deep brain stimulator. So that's a stimulator placed for either essential tremor or Parkinson's disease uh, that was placed and the wires were crossing the chest and the cardiothoracic surgeon had reached out to me because, um, and I actually am interested in deep brain stimulation. I did, uh, let me, I'll go there in a second, but, um, and the surgeon that had placed it, he had called them and the, the, the person had said, oh, just cut the wires and then we'll revise the surgery. And the gut instinct, because that neurosurgeon wasn't in Abilene, because in Abilene we don't uh, place any deep brain stimulators. Um, they called me and I said, no, 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 I'm on call. Just call me in when y'all start the case. I will, uh, move the wires out of the way and remove the battery. And then once y'all close up, I will replace them because you don't want to cut the wires. That's, that's too much. And so I had saw the patient, um, the evening before surgery because, um, and the patient had suffered a heart attack. And so, uh, they had failed the, the, the cath. And so that's why they needed the open heart surgery. And I told her my plan, I told her there's a risk that even with what I did, it might not work and she would have to have them replaced, but it would be a real easy part. I would come in, then I would let the heart surgeons do their thing and I'd come in with closure and make sure it's all working. And I communicated to the Medtronic rep uh, Medtronic is a company that implant that uh, has the devices for deep brain stimulation and they weren't available but they would be available for me um, to follow up after the surgery and make sure that it checked out and was working well sorry that's my cat in the background so um, I uh, so that Saturday morning I had done my rounds and I had told the uh, cardiothoracic circulating nurse just to give me a call after they'd gone back and when they needed me. And let me go back in deep brain stimulation. And so pre-COVID, I was actually trying to get deep brain stimulation possibly started in Abilene um, because uh, I had trained under Dr. Holloway at VCU. And Dr. Holloway was the first female um, surgeon that graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University or back at that time, Medical College of Virginia neurosurgery program. Um, I think she was technically second, but after Susan, who I mentioned um, was killed by the uh, cell site strangler, um, she was actually the, the first female that graduated. And Dr. Holloway is an amazing person. And she had and her focus is with deep brain stimulation. And so I was trained by one of the experts in the United States um, with deep brain stimulation. And she actually, there's two t- different types to way 
and there's actually sort of become a third. Um, basically, prior to Dr. Holloway, um, for patients who uh, needed a deep brain stimulation, they, um, sorry, I need to sneeze. Sorry, I muted it, so um, I might need to sneeze again. So they, the patients had to be in a frame. So it was this metal frame that we screwed to their head and placed it um, and then do imaging and placed it and secured it to the operating room table. So they were awake so we could test how well they did with, stimu with the stimulation or the placement of the leads. But if you think about it, your head's rigid just think of being like in the dentist chair or in the hair salon and you can't move for like hours on end. It's very uncomfortable. And so Dr. Holloway, and this is what I loved about Dr. Young, our chairman, Dr. Ho uh, Dr. Young made an environment and Dr. Holloway came up um, and I don't think she financially received anything from this, but with a small company that I think ended up being bought by Medtronic came up with what we call a frameless deep brain stimulation. So so the old school is more like the frame, and she uh, developed a device that basically you, uh, it's sort of like a, I think it's almost like a, like a, hmm, I don't know how to say it, sort of like screws onto the, the brain around the burr hole. And then from those coordinates and interoperative imaging, it's called frameless deep brain stimulation, you can um, place the deep brain stimulation needs and actually have the patient more in an inclined position. They're not, they're not strapped to the bed. They can move their head around a little bit, um, but cautiously. And so it, it actually makes it a, a lot easier for the patient to tolerate. Now they have come out with doing, and some of these are in the bigger academic centers like San Francisco, where they actually use um, imaging in the MRI machine and do these in the MRI machine, which um, it works well in the bigger centers because, um, but it also ties up the MRI machine. So when you tie up the MRI machine, that's a little lost pro uh, productivity. So it, it really hasn't gone to the smaller centers because you can't really use an MRI machine for a entire day or you're doing it on Saturday or Sunday but still there's you know some of these smaller communities only have one maybe two MRI machines and and also you probably don't in the smaller communities have doctors that focus just on deep brain stimulation and the one reason I haven't even though I've done with Dr. Holloway probably over 50 of these surgeries and uh, try to bring that to Abilene is I don't have a movement disordered neurologist and you really need a great movement disorder neurologist. And that was Dr. Barron at VCU. And actually I shadowed Dr. Barron for a whole week, my intern year. And this is a interesting story. Um, so the interesting story about this is that When I was shadowing Dr. Barron, there was this gentleman that came in. And, and I can't, I, I remember him because a part of his name is my name. So, um, and that's all I can say because of HIPAA. But he looked, he was in his mid-50s, and he 
was in basketball shorts and a shirt and just normal shoes. I would say like Nike, New Balance, some something that they weren't more than $100. And I saw him with Dr. Barron. And he said, hey, Dr. Barron, um, I came into a little bit more money because my father passed away. And I really appreciate what you and, you know, VCU had a Parkinson's, you know, um, what you and Dr. Holloway and everybody's done for movement disorders. And I needed to, and I need, and I had this extra money and I need to donate it for taxes. And so I made a donation. And Dr. Barron was like, oh, I appreciate that. I haven't heard about it yet. He's like, no, I just recently did it. And I don't know how it came up. And actually, I think it was more Dr. Barron, like, asking him than him telling because he seemed very down to earth. But he donated a million dollars for Parkinson's and what they were doing at VCU. And I said, note to self, sometimes the people with the most amount of money don't look like they have any money at all. Just to note that. But I was dumbfounded. But Dr. Barron was an, is, is an amazing neurologist. And actually one of the physicians that was one of my physicians um, had reached out to me. And I had noticed the symptoms because I observe people, but I never, I never say anything, but I'm very observant being a neurosurgeon by if you're left or right-handed, what type of tremors you have, what do they mean? How's your gait? I can observe a lot. Um, and I knew this person had Parkinson's and they reached out. And I got them in touch with Dr. Barron because I said, he's the best to manage your, your medications. Um, and so I felt that God, God was instrumental with me being a patient of theirs to get unplugged into the best. And he, and he, Dr. Barron is great. And so that's one reason why I haven't done deep brain stimulation here. But after being trained by Dr. Holloway, I knew that cutting those leads was not what you wanted to do. A surgery just to place one could take half a day, and to place both was either two half a days or one entire day. And I didn't want to subject the patient through another deep brain stimulation surgery if it wasn't necessary. Plus, they just had a heart attack and was having a cabbage, so they might not be cleared for several months to a year. And not having their device where it's working could be detrimental. They could have falls. They could not be able to eat as well as they are, participate in therapy. So I was like, no, no, no. I don't care if I have to stay all the day. I'm on call. That's, that's why I'm on call. And I'll come in, move the leads aside, and then I'll replace them at the end of the surgery and hook the device back up. And if it's not working, we can always change the battery and we can do that under local, but that way I know the leads are intact and there's no issues. So they called me and I went into the operating room and I felt like a med student all again. I was like, wow, this is cool. This is heart surgery. And I've never been in heart surgery before. And I was just like a kid at a candy store. 
And what I noticed about, and I, I, you know, I felt like a med student. And as a med student, you don't talk, you don't say anything. You just sort of, you're not even supposed to, you're supposed to blend in into your surroundings. But I was like, man, y'all have white towels and not blue towels. And I learned that that's because one of the cardiothoracic surgeons said, I can't use blue sutures. They get lost in the towels if they're blue. So I was like, y'all have white towels. It's like this whole operating theater that even for neurosurgery, like neurosurgery, it's like, it's like nice theater. But I mean, for cardiothoracic, it is like Broadway. And so I'm in there looking over anesthesias, um, you know, uh, they have draped out, looking in, seeing what I need to scrub in. And I'm like, I'm going to go scrub in. And I'm just chit-chatting away, which in my operating room one time I said, are there any other funny surgeons? And they said, nope, just you. So I actually am pretty like lighthearted and crack jokes and I, I mean, I love operating, and so everybody who's in my OR, unless it's very, like, they don't know when I get quiet, um, or if I'm more tired from call, I'm quiet, and everybody respects that, and it's not haphazard. I have a patient who has put their life on the line for me to operate on them, so I'm not haphazard, but I just am in love with what I do. I enjoy it so much, and so I was just chit-chatting and nobody like the scrub techs who are the people that they actually have two scrub techs. So um, those are the people that um, hand instruments to the surgeon and they have the surgeon has their assistant who is either a PA or a nurse practitioner. Um, I think cardiothoracic has like four of them on their service. And they have an anesthesiologist there and a circulating nurse. I mean, this is Broadway. And I'm just like, this is so Cool. This is so interesting. And I'm just cracking jokes. And I'm I'm like, it is so cool. And I, I remember I, I came in, I removed the wires out of the way. I put them sort of like there's this tegaderm. So it's like um, tape, but sterilized tape you can put. So I taped them off on the shoulder out of the way for the surgeon. And I told him to call me when I came back or to call me when the surgery was, uh, was closing, which it took all day. And I actually, I, I rounded and I had a few consults. And then finally, when I wrapped everything up, I checked in and they're like, yeah, we're wrapping up. You can come in. So I came back into the operating room and I said, you know what? This is so cool, but neurosurgery is so much cooler. And I said that right to the cardiothoracic surgeon. I said, I bet I have a cooler case than you do. And I said, and, and this is, I, I, didn't, I hadn't thought about this case until I was in, in the conversation. I said, when I was in training, we, um, uh, there was a pediatric patient that has initially consulted to neurosurgery. Um, actually, at the end of the pregnancy term by maternal fetal medicine for hydrocephalus. And it wasn't called till right before uh, delivery and usually neurosurgery is notified about these patients pre-delivery as well as spina bifida patients because sometimes we have to coordinate after the delivery coordinate their treatment and once the the patient was delivered they realized the hydrocephalus was because the patient actually had 
and this is, it, it's not necessarily, I don't, I, I guess layman terms, a Siamese twin, but actually there was two twins in the brain that had been forming in the ventricular system as the patient grew in utero. So basically, what does that mean? So the ventricular system, you have spinal fluid in your brain. It's actually the spinal fluid where you get a lumbar puncture when, when you tap. And an adult has about 150 mLs of spinal fluid in their brain at, um, in their spinal cord at one time. And it circulates like about three times a day. So about half a liter. And it's something, if you think about it, it's like saliva. You keep making it and it's absorbed in some people. So some people it can absorb because there's an obstruction. And so this uh, patient actually had an obstruction because her two Siamese twins were in the brain keeping the fluid from going through the channels, almost like a dam. So that's called obstructive hydrocephalus. And then you also have, and we see that more with kids or they have aqueductal uh, stenosis. And that's the most common reason for obstructive hydrocephalus in kids. And that's, there's like this webbing basically between the third and fourth ventricle that keeps the spinal fluid from going almost like a dam in that constant flow of fluid. And so usually these patients either get a shunt or when they're older, we call an intraventricular or an ETV where we make a bypass. And I, t I tell patients, it's almost like you you're thinking of a road like a highway and you're building an on and off ramp. So that's what the ETV is. And also that's sort of what a shunt is, but a shunt is basically an off ramp that never comes back. It basically, we take the fluid, we drain it either into the abdominal cavity. You can drain it into the lung cavity. You can train, um, or sometimes directly in the heart, like a central line and very rarely sometimes in the gallbladder, et cetera. And why would we, you know, with these kids. So sometimes these premature kids when they're um, less than 30 weeks. And I remember Dr. Ward, when I was like 32 weeks said, oh great, you're out of the window. Dr. Ward said pediatric neurosurgeon when I was carrying my daughter Talia. But when they're delivered preemie, they can have intraventricular hemorrhages. And when they have intraventricular hemorrhages, that causes their brain. And so that's more of a communication hydrocephalus. So think of clogging. So there's little, uh, how do I describe this? Think of a drain that absorbs your spinal fluid. So when you have a hemorrhage, it clogs it just like hair clogs the sink. And so sometimes with these kids, we do serial taps and sometimes like Drano, it will unclog and it will start absorbing it again. And sometimes it doesn't. Also, some of these preemies have issues because they can't breathe well. So that's why we don't put it in their lungs. Sometimes they have where their, their abdominal uh contents are on the outside of their belly and they have to have surgery. So you don't want to put it in their belly because they won't absorb. So some of these um, preemies, you have to put it like a central line into the heart. Um, and so some, so, and actually there's different countries like China, they always put it in the heart first. But the reason why I think we don't do it in the United States is number one, um, you have to have more revisions as the kid um, grows. So that, so you can put a lot of extra catheter in the belly and it grows with the kid every now and then it snaps. Um, actually, I have a cool surge, cool story to tell you about that. And wanted to know if I should do, I'll do that later. I'll do that later. Um, that it snaps. But usually if it's in the lung or the heart, you have to every couple of years extend it. And so some of the kids that are preemies and we can't put in the belly 
or the lungs will have to extend it. The other thing is that you have to uh, check because um, uh, the spinal fluid is filtered by the kidneys. And every now and then people can get what we call nephrotic syndrome where the protein of the spinal fluid plugs up the kidneys and it, uh, and it, the kidneys don't work well. So you have to check kidney labs every year if you do put it in the heart. So uh, with this patient, we are called for obstructive hydrocephalus. And on further workup, found that there was two fetuses in the brain that were growing that had not survived, but were growing and were causing the fluid to build up and not drain properly. And the hard part is when babies are initially born, their brain is like gooey. So it's not really in a good state to operate and so, or not do a major operation. So um, the pediatric neurosurgeons tried to wait and waited as long as they could. It was three, three months. And there's actually a paper written about this surgery so um and it was the first i think case report and it was mainly more through pathology but it was um a case report of intraventricular so that means in the ventricle system twin fetuses and fetu and the hardest part um after talking to the surgeons that operated and i didn't operate i was more of a junior resident at this time um that removed um one of the it well one of the um, the the surgeons was uh, Tiffany Powell and she actually was three years my senior and she was the third um, female uh, neurosurgeon to graduate from the program and I was the fourth but what they did not initially it was felt it was a teratoma which is a type of tumor that has uh, well differentiated. Um, like you, you hear of like hair and teeth and teratomas, but when they realized it, it was actually, um, two separate twin or two, um, different babies that were twins of the patient. And what they did not like is when they were removing it, it was like removing body parts of actual babies. And that was the hardest part. And I, um, I think from the, um, case report and I don't know the patient initially went to hospice for a while afterwards but I think survived and I don't know if the patient continued to survive after the surgery because number one I think it's devastating from brain development to have um, uh, fetuses growing in your brain but also uh, having to operate so early because the patient couldn't tolerate waiting longer when the brain was a little bit more firm uh, was not helpful as well. But I told the cardiothoracic surgeon, I said, I bet you've never found a fetus in the heart. <laughs> so that is why neurosurgery trumps cardiothoracic surgery. And I did say that in the operating room. So, and I actually got a smile, which was amazing because it is so quiet. And I remember coming out of the and talking about being in the cardiothoracic operating room. And I was like, why is it so quiet in that room? 
And I did have, I think one of the anesthesiologists or somebody said, it's because you have to listen to the heartbeat and the heart rate on the monitor. I was like, oh, yeah. And I do that too every now and then. I'll, but I do it more of subconscious. Like I'll do it and then if something changes, I'll be like, everything okay? But anyway, I did tell a cardiothoracic surgeon that throat surgery chomped them. So anyway, so, and I said it based on having this interesting case of basically two Siamese twins growing in the brain of another of the patient. And that's pretty rare. So anyway, best of luck to y'all in 2022. And I'll try to reach back out after the call. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed.